This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to our program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. Today we're going to continue in our studies in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Raymond Kelsey in the Living Word Commentary on page 38 made this statement, and I quote, Having expressed thanksgiving for the Thessalonians based upon knowledge of their having been chosen of God, and having given the reasons for this certainty, Paul now proceeds to elaborate more fully upon the nature of his mission in Thessalonica. Now there may have been a kind of a whispering campaign against Paul in Thessalonica from some of the things that are mentioned that we're going to be looking at today. First of all, the testimony of Paul and the Thessalonians is given there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, first of all, look at verse 1. We're going to look at the testimony of Paul and the Thessalonians. It says there, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. Now, you'll notice, first of all, that Paul addresses the Thessalonians with a term of endearment whenever he calls them brethren. Paul appeals to the knowledge of the brethren about himself and his companions when they were there with them in Thessalonica. Now, not only did others report the power and effectiveness of the word of God in Thessalonica, as we saw in chapter 1, but the brethren there had firsthand experience as to how the gospel had affected their own hearts and lives. You know, the teaching of the gospel was not in vain. It had borne fruit and had great results. Now, the gospel was preached in spite of the great opposition they had experienced there in Philippi and were experiencing in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, Paul said, but even after that we had suffered before, uh, be referring to Philippi and maybe other places, and he mentions it here, and were shamely entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel with much contention. Well, back in Philippi, you go to Acts chapter 16 and look at verses 22 through 24. Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 24. It says, And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison, and made their feet fast in the stocks. So right there we see the problems and how they were shamefully entreated there in Philippi. And we also you know, understand that the Philippian jailer was converted that, at that time as well. 
And then back in Thessalonica, we'll read again Acts chapter 17, verses 8 through 10, where it says, And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So Paul and Silas and Timothy were teaching the Thessalonians the gospel under intense opposition. And that shows the sincerity of the teachers. They were not just there to make money off the brethren. They were sincere in trying to teach them the gospel to save their souls. And they were bold to speak the gospel because they humbly depended on the support of God. God was the one who was supporting them and though thus they were bold to speak the gospel. They were not deterred from teaching the gospel in spite of the evil treatment they had received and they were receiving there in Thessalonica. Their attitude was to do or die in the service of the Lord, and our attitude should be the same. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we see the character of the preaching. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. First of all, there in verse 3, they did not teach the gospel through evil intentions. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 says, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. All right. Their exhortation to turn to God, for them, the Thessalonians, to turn to God, was not to lead them into error for selfish purposes. You know, the way we live is the influence we have on others. We are either a light or we are darkness. Well, Paul said that their teaching or exhortation among them was not of deceit. The Greek word there, there says, means error, that which leads into error, deceit, or fraud. They were not trying to deceive them in any way or lead them into error. He says also, nor of uncleanness. Thayer says that that Greek word means, in a moral sense, the impurity of lustful, luxurious, profligate living. Uh, the profligate living, the wasteful living, you might recall uh, the prodigal son wasted all that his father had given him. That's the kind of a lifestyle that we're looking at here in uncleanness. And then Paul says that their exhortation to turn to God was not done in guile. Now I'm turning to Strong's definitions for the Greek word here. It means an absolute primary, probably meaning to decoy. A trick bait, that is figuratively wile. And he says to compare uh, the Greek word 1185, which means to entrap or delude. So they did not come to trick the Thessalonians. They came to teach the word of God. And God trusted them to teach the truth in the proper way. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. All right, he starts off that uh, verse with the word, but. That is in contrast to what was just stated in verse 3. They didn't do it in guile or deceit or any error or anything like that. So, But here's what it is. Here's the contrast to that. They were allowed of God to do that. He says, let's see, the phrase allowed of God there, Thayer says that that Greek word means to recognize as genuine after examination, to approve, to deem worthy. So they were allowed of God to teach the gospel. God recognized them as genuine, and God approved them worthy to do it. And allowed is in the perfect tense, which means a continuing state before God. They were continuing to be genuine and approved. And the American Standard Version there does translate that as approved. God trusted them to speak the truth of the greatest treasure on earth, and that's the gospel. We turn over now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 5 through 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. It says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So right there, they did not teach the gospel to make themselves popular with men, as he stated first of all there, but they taught the gospel to please God. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So right there he says, if we teach to please men, if we do what Paul said that those do over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses, let me get over there to it, 2 Timothy chapter 4, get to the right spot here. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want to look at verses 1 to 4. He says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant or be ready, in season, out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine 
But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Right there you have teachers who seek to please men. And Paul said in Galatians 1.10 that they were not there to please men because if they taught the word of God in a way to please men, they would not be servants of Christ. And then back here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, we speak not as pleasing men, but God in there in verse 4. But he says, what does God do? God trieth our hearts. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, Jeremiah 17, 10, Jeremiah wrote, I the Lord search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So God searches our hearts to see why we do what we do and what we're doing. In Psalm 11, verse 4, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. So there we have God. God sees us. He tries us. He sees what we do. He knows what we do. He knows what we think. He knows why we do what we do. So right there, we need to understand God knows all about us, and we need to be pleasing to him. Now, whenever we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, we see the method of the messengers who taught the Thessalonians the word of God. In other words, the methods there that were used by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. In verse 5, the teaching of the gospel does not flatter, and it is not popular with most people. 1 Thessalonians 2.5 For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. You know, God's eyelids try the children of men. God knows why Paul and those others taught the gospel to them. They didn't use flattering words. Uh, Albert Barnes in his commentary there on Esau stated this, and I quote, The meaning is that the apostle did not deal with the language of adulation, and adulation just simply means excessive praise. Now I'll get back to the quote. He did not praise them for their beauty, wealth, talent, or accomplishments and conceal from them the painful truths about their guilt and danger. See, that's what teaching the whole Word of God does. It doesn't flatter people, but it tells people what they need to do. Paul did not teach the gospel for material gain of any kind. Back in Acts chapter 20, verse 33, Paul there uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders, 
Acts 20, 33 says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Paul was not there to make money like so many so-called preachers today. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, Paul wrote, Perverse disputings of men corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. So right there, those that are out there to make money, and you know who they are, they're the ones who are always asking for money. Well, they're not servants of Jesus Christ, very plainly. But God knew Paul's heart, and he knew that Paul was not out to make money. Paul was not out after a lofty position in society. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 says, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. All right, so again, their teaching the gospel was not influenced by a desire for fame and glory. That's not what they were after. Paul, Timothy, and Silas did not use their right to live of the gospel so that they would not be burdensome to the Thessalonians. Now, <clears throat> them not being a burden there, <clears throat> that could mean support, monetary support, which they had the right to receive, but they didn't. Or it may mean a severe and commanded respect reverence as gospels, uh, teachers of the gospel. But they did not do that either. Now, the word apostle there, you know, it said there, we as apostles of Christ, well, Silas and Timothy were not apostles like Paul was. The word apostle there comes from the Greek word apostolos. And Thayer says apostolos means this, a delegate, messenger, one sent forth with orders. So they were messengers of the gospel. And they were gentle among the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. <clears throat> Gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And the servant of the Lord is to be gentle. Over in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 24. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Be ready to teach and be patient with those you're teaching. Again, Adam Clark now, from his commentary on Esword, stated this, and I quote, Far from assuming the authority which we had, we acted toward you as a tender nurse or parent does to a delicate child. <clears throat> We fed, counseled, cherished, and bore with you. We taught you to walk, preserved you from stumbling, and led you into a right path, unquote. 
So just as that nurse or that mother leads the child in a way, a tender way, counseling, feeding, cherishing, bearing with them, that's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy there did spiritually with those in Thessalonica. Well, Paul and his companions were moved by sincere love for the Thessalonians instead of trying to make a gain of them. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. The verse there, 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says this, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because ye were dear unto us. And that phrase there, being affectionately desirous, comes from a Greek word that Thayer says means this, to desire, long for, especially the longing of love. Well, Paul here also states that he and Timothy and Silas would have been ready to lay down their lives for the Thessalonians, as we saw there. They wanted to give, they would also give their own souls to them. Well, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, 1 John 3, 16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So Paul was just doing what it requires a Christian to do, willing to lay down his life for the brethren, Paul and Timothy and Silas there. And the Thessalonians were more than just a group of people to Paul, Timothy, and Silas. They were each an individual soul that they had a great love for. Every individual in the congregation there in Thessalonica. <clears throat> and Paul and his companions' sacrifice and service were well known to the Thessalonians. And he brings that up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. So Paul, first of all, says, remember. And you remember this. You remember our labor and travail. The word labor there comes from a Greek word that Thayer says means intense labor, united with trouble and toil. So there was some trouble, there was some persecution going on as well while they were laboring there for the Thessalonians. And then travail. Uh, Thayer says the Greek word there means a hard and difficult labor, toil, travail, hardship, distress. All right, these are self-denying labors that the evangelists were doing not to be a physical burden to the Thessalonians. And he says they labored both night and day. Well, Paul did receive support from the Philippians while he was at Thessalonica. 
but he refused support from the Thessalonians while he was there. When we look in Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says there, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. So Paul was receiving support from the congregation in Philippi while he was in Thessalonica, but they also labored and travailed there so that they would not be chargeable to the Thessalonians. Well, that once again proves that the work of evangelism that Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing in Thessalonica was genuine because Paul refers to the purity of life that he and those with him had lived. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 states that. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 says, Ye are witnesses and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. So both the Thessalonians and God are witnesses of the truthfulness of what Paul is saying. All right, now, holy is a term describing the dedication to the service of God. Righteousness, which is translated justly in the King James Version, indicates conformity to God's norm of living. And these quotes are coming from Kelsey on page 47 of his book. The next quote, blameless, which is unblameably in the King James Version, emphasizes in a negative way the absence of reproach. So what we have here, what Paul is saying there, you saw how holy we lived in the service to God. You saw how justly or righteously or how we conformed to God's normal way of living, not God's way of living there in Thessalonica, and that we were blameless. There was no reproach on them there. So the evangelists' lives were holy, consecrated to God, just and fair to everyone. And Paul appeals to the knowledge of the readers for confirmation of their conduct. There in 1 Thessalonians 2.11. 1 Thessalonians 2.11 states, as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Now notice in this verse, Paul goes from a nursing mother to a pious father in encouraging his children to do right. And he says that we exhorted you the word, Greek word translated exhorted, there says means to console, to encourage, and to strengthen by consolation, to comfort. So they are exhorting them as a 
father, a pious father, a righteous father, exhorting his children. And he says also, exhorted and comforted you. Comforted there, again, the Greek word there says means this, to speak, to address one, whether by way of admonition and incentive or to calm and console. Now you think about the things that were taking place in Thessalonica. The persecution that was going on, uh, they had to leave Thessalonica very quickly after only a, about a month, something like that. They were there three Sabbath days, we know that. But they needed comforting, calming, and consoling. But then he says they also charged every one of you. Charged means to give or not keep back testimony. And he notices there as a father, every one of you as a father doth his children. Attention was given to each individual, every one of you. So again, Paul goes from that nursing mother being gentle and taking care of the child, the children, to a pious father encouraging his father, his children there to do right. Well, the charge is given in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. The call that they would walk worthy of God, that's the charge. And honor God always in your lives. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, Ephesians 4 1 says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. We need to walk as children of God. You know, Mama used to say whenever I would go out to do something, remember who you are. Barnes in his commentary on Esword said this, and I quote, A child walks worthy of a parent when he lives in such a way as to reflect honor on that parent for the method in which he has trained him. When he so lives as to bring no disgrace on him, so as not to pain his heart by misconduct, or so as to give no occasion for any to speak reproachfully of him, unquote. And that is the way that we are to live for God. Now I want to quote Kelsey from page 48 in his book. The quote is this. The expression worthy of God describes a life in which man offers to God the very best he can. It involves the surrendering of man's will to God's will, unquote. Whenever we surrender our lives to God, that is whenever we are worthy of the call of the gospel. And God called them out of the world through the gospel. That freed them from sin and translated them into the kingdom of his dear son. There in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14, 
2 Thessalonians 2, 14. He said, Whereunto he called you by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God called them through the gospel. He freed them from sin, John chapter 8, verse 32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth makes us free from the penalty of sin when we obey the truth. And God translated them into the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1.13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Of course, we understand that the kingdom is the church, the church of Christ. You go back to Matthew <coughs> chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we look at verses 13 through 19. Matthew 16 13 through 19. It says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath, not, blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, or also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades there, shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So right there, Jesus is saying, I will build my church on this confession that you just made, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he goes, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church is the kingdom. And he said there, I'm going to give you the keys. Peter used those keys in Acts chapter 2. Whenever he told those there what they needed to do in order to enter the kingdom, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the, or in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter used those keys, giving them a means of entrance into the kingdom of God, the church. And what does it say? The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. So Peter used those king, uh, keys to the kingdom. We have been translated from the power of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, we have the response to the message 
In other words, how the Thessalonians responded to the message of the gospel. First of all, in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul thanks God for the way the Thessalonians received the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It says, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believed. So the Thessalonians received the word of God and they accepted it. They obeyed it. They understood that the gospel did not originate with humans, but it originated with God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul mentions that also. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 says, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. In other words, they were inspired. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Spiritual things with spiritual words. That's the context here. Barnes, again, in Esword in his commentary, stated this, and I quote, not of human origin, but as a divine revelation. You are not led to embrace it by human reasoning or the mere arts of persuasion or from personal respect for others, but by your conviction that it was a revelation from God, unquote. So again, the gospel is not of human origin. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is the power of God. And the word of God is living and active. I want to look at Hebrews 4.12 from the American Standard Version. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is living. It is active. It is just as alive and active today as it has been since the very creation. In 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23, Peter wrote this, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit under the unfeigned love of the brethren, See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. God's word is living. It is active. It will abide forever. And he said, you have purified your souls by obeying the truth. You obeyed the gospel. You did what Peter told them to do in Acts chapter 2, 
and what so many, what Paul had taught, also what Jesus taught, what they needed to do. Now, the Thessalonians were imitators of the churches in Judea. Now, in what way? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul tells us. 1 Thessalonians 2.14. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have the Jews. So the Thessalonians were following the same law, the law of Christ, and they were meeting the same difficulties that the churches in Judea were facing. Those churches were in Jesus Christ, as it mentions there. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God in Judea, or which are in Judea, are in Christ Jesus. So they're following Christ. Now, Adam Clark in his commentary on Esword stated this again, and I quote, It is not worthy of remark that in almost every case the Jews were the leaders of all persecutions against the apostles in the infant church. And what they could not do themselves, they instigated others to do. And by gathering together lewd fellows of the baser sort from among the Gentiles, they made frequent uproars, and especially at Thessalonica, where the opposition to the gospel was very high, and the persecution of the Christians very hot, unquote. All right, now, what are the results of the wicked course of the unbelieving Jews and those that they instigated in the Gentiles? 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16 speaks specifically there of the Jews. It says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. All right, so he first mentions here that they are the ones who killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Well, in John 19, 15, we see that they instigated and led to the death of Jesus. John 19, 15, says they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Well, they, <laughs> they just hated Jesus worse than they hated Caesar, is why they said that. But they instigated it. They brought Jesus before Pilate to have him executed. They killed their own prophets. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus there speaking, Matthew 23, 37, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, 
and ye would not. So they killed their prophets. They killed the Lord. Jesus said in Luke 13, 33, Luke 13, 33 said, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. They killed their prophets. The Jews had shown through their history that they did not meet with God's approval. They made great pretensions to be the children of Abraham and the people of God. But Stephen told them what they really were. They're in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. Acts 7, 51 to 53. He said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by disposition of angels and have not kept it. Oh, they pretended to be children of Abraham. They said they were the people of God. Stephen said, no, you're not. You've always resisted God. You're stubborn. You're uncircumcised in heart, uncircumcised in ears. You may be circumcised in flesh, but your heart's not with God. You don't hear what God says. You have not kept the law. And they didn't like that. Well, you know, you know, from the following verses, they stoned Stephen. They hated that. Well, they were contrary to all men because they tried to prevent not only their own countrymen from obeying and hearing the gospel, but the Gentiles as well so that they could be saved. In Matthew 23, 13, Jesus just gives this description. Matthew 23, 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer them, are ye them that are entering to go in. You try to prevent those that are going into the kingdom to go for to Try to prevent them from going into it. In Acts 17, 13, Says, but when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. They did not want people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, the unbelieving Jews filled up their sins. In other words, they're doing what they have always done. They are resisting God. They are exposing themselves to his wrath. And they would face God's wrath in about 20 years from the time of the writing here of the Thessalonian letter. When the Roman general Titus came in AD 70 and destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and the Jews as a nation. They were scattered to the uttermost parts of the world. Because he said there that they filled the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. 
To give you an example of that from the Old Testament, I want to go to Genesis chapter, let's see, which chapter I want to go to. <laughs> Genesis chapter 13. You know, Lot and Abraham divided up there. Now we go to Genesis chapter 15, and it says there, and he took him unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid, this is the beginning in verse 10, laid each piece one against the other, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, a horror of a great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know ye of your surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou, verse 15, shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. There in verse 16. When the iniquity of the Amorites was full, Joshua came in and destroyed the land. And that's what happened here with the Jews. Their iniquity was filled, and the destruction of Jerusalem came in AD 70 when God's wrath came upon them to the uttermost. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 20, <clears throat> we see Paul's longing to see them again. Paul contrasts himself and Silas and Timothy with the Jewish persecutors. Chapter 2, verse 17. He says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. You know, Paul was not with the Thessalonians very long before he was forced to leave the city. Again, we know he was there for three Sabbath days. Might have been there around a month. Uh, he hadn't been gone from Thessalonica very long at this point whenever he's writing the letter, but he greatly longed to see them. His body was in Corinth where the letter was written from, but his heart was in Thessalonica. And Satan hindered Paul from going to Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 1 Thessalonians 2.18 says, 2, says, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, we don't know the circumstances of how Satan hindered Paul's return to Thessalonica, but as the Gospel Advocate Commentary on 1 Thessalonians states on page 35, and I quote, When our endeavors are directed to the work of the Lord, it is certain that everything that hinders proceeds from Satan, unquote. So he's going to hinder any way that he can. <clears throat> the motive for Paul's desire to return for Thessalonica is given in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? 
Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? See, the Thessalonians are in Paul and Timothy and Silas's highest hopes. The Thessalonians are a source of deep joy. The Thessalonians were a crown of rejoicing because they had remained faithful to Christ in the face of their persecutions. Now, the word crown there comes from the Greek word stephanos. That is a chaplet as a, this is Thayer's, excuse me, uh, Moulton's definition. A chaplet is a badge of royalty, a prize in the public games, or a symbol of honor generally. So it's a symbol of honor. And the second coming of Christ would be the day when the hope, joy, and crown would be fully realized. And then Paul's concern and compassion for the Thessalonians is given in 1 Thessalonians 2.20. 1 Thessalonians 2.20 says, For ye are our glory and joy. Paul had witnessed the transformation in the Thessalonians from idol worshipers to their having a strong faith and loyalty to God. And what joy this would bring to Paul and to Timothy and Silas. And John mentioned that same kind of joy there in 3 John verses 3 and 4. 3 John verses 3 and 4 say, For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And the Thessalonians were walking in truth, brought great joy there to Paul, Timothy, and Silas. So Paul's extremely strong affection for the Thessalonian Christians is expressed in this letter. And that would be most encouraging to the Thessalonians. And if there were slanderous reports about Paul in the church in Thessalonica, this letter would go a long way to refute and prove that those false claims were not true. Again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. Well, thank you for tuning in today. And again, if you're ever in the Moody, Missouri area, come and worship with us. We're located there on the, on the corner there in uh, Moody. There's only one corner, so you'll find us real easily. We meet on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock for Bible class and 11 o'clock for worship. Again, we meet in si at 6 o'clock Sunday evening for worship. And then Wednesday night, we also meet at 6 o'clock for Bible class. So thank you for being with us, and we look forward to having you with us again. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. 
You can find out more about Bible Wave Media by visiting us at BibleWaveMedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram, and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoy this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.